Well, this morning, as I mentioned, I want to talk with you about peaceful hearts in crazy times. Peaceful hearts in crazy times. And uh, yesterday, between 9.30 and what was it, 1.30 or something, for all those hours, not because um, I'm playing anything, we actually needed toilet paper in the house. <laughs> and so all those hours, Robert and I are driving around from store to store, and we actually have pictures of it, so don't put it on the screen. It's okay. Yeah. But every time I found a roll of toilet paper at a gas station somewhere in a distant area, <laughs> I would take a picture like Robert and I is like, white gold! We got white gold! <laughs> and of course, you know, we didn't stock up nothing. <clears throat> so now we're driving around looking for toilet paper because we actually need toilet paper. I just thought I'll mention that in case anybody is generous and wants to share. We don't do secondhand nothing in our house. <laughs> Maybe we'll have some toilet paper in a bucket. It's, it's okay. And so um, we eventually found, uh, Basui, I kid you not, this is a Nigerian food store, grocery store, in a distant, and uh, uh, Caribbean, yeah. And so we walked in there, we're like, do you guys have, yeah, we got, and then they had one 24-roll packet there, and uh, wasn't that wonderful. All right. But uh, <laughs> we were cracking up everywhere we go, and everybody's like, oh, it's the end of the world, and Robert and I are like, white gold, white gold. <laughs> but uh, it was fun. It was fun times. We got pictures to prove. But people, you know, all over the world, throughout all generations and all time, people wish for peace, don't they? People always pray for peace, peace of mind, peace in relationships, peace in communities, peace in the world. Uh, what most people really ask for when they ask for peace is actually freedom. They really actually, when they say, God, give us peace, they really want freedom from arguments. They really want freedom from hell. They want freedom from troubles. They want freedom from threats. They want freedom from stress. They feel like there will, will be peace for them if, in fact, they'll be free from the anxieties and the fears of this life. They, they, then they'll have peace. So peace is actually the absence of something to them. Really, with God, it's not the absence of something. It's the presence of God Himself, right? But people want to find peace of mind. People want to find peace and quiet. World leaders attempt to make peace. Law enforcement works to keep the peace. Everything is about finding, making, discovering, attempting to arrive at, and keeping the peace. Now, as you have seen this past week, of course, we live in a very fragile and troubled world, and, and uh, whether people over-exaggerate or not, uh, we live in a very fragile world in many ways. And people are on edge. They become anxious about anything and everything, and they do so very quickly, don't they? At the drop of a hat, it's like wildfire. Do you realize the HN, the H1N1 virus was reported in its, in its entirety within the millions times within all of media. However, the corona, over 1.1 billion, and that was like three weeks ago, has the, over 1.1 billion times has the media talked about it. 
And so people become very anxious much quicker now because we have a media-driven world and it's no longer mainstream. It is actually also now, um, you know, online and so forth. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to walk through a few of God's promises that He made His children when it comes to the concept of anxiety. And this right here isn't absolutely about the coronavirus. This is about life in general, including what people face today. But let's walk through a few of God's promises He made you and I, for you and I who are in Christ, and let's look at these promises He made for us. First is Psalm 56, verse 3. It says, When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. This is so helpful to me. Because it starts with the word when. When I am afraid, meaning actually, Christian, it's going to happen. Okay? It is actually going to happen. There will be times when fear knocks on your door. However, this verse gives very clear directives. When fear happens to you is when you must begin to battle. This is the battle cry. When you are afraid is when you go to war. And the battle you engage with is the battle called unbelief. Why is this? Because that is what it actually says in this verse. Instead of doubting God, you should put your trust in God. In other words, stop the anxiety, start the trusting. That's what it says. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. When I'm afraid, battle cry, I'll put my trust in you. When anxiety comes, this is, go this is time for war. I put my trust in you. I have faith in you. And that's what it says. Psalm 56.3. So in this context, the opposite of fear is absolutely trust. Jesus doubles down on the fact that anxiety and fear is the opposite of trust. Right here in Matthew 6.25, it says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. Can you tell your neighbor, do not be anxious about your life? Now, uh, you turn to the other neighbor and you say, Jesus said, do not be anxious about your life. Now, that's kind of like, all right, nutshell version of Jesus' message, we can now go home. Because he actually didn't say, do not be anxious about your health. He said life, because that includes your health. He didn't say, do not be anxious about the economy. He says, don't be anxious about your life. He, he actually just, he put an umbrella over everything that can be mentioned, and he says, don't be anxious about it, all right? If he can mention something, that's part of it, because it's part of your life. He says, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. He's basically telling you it's not about this. It's about something much greater. 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap and gather, and nor do they gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? How does anxiety help you? It does not. You know what I realized here? <clears throat> As we read through it, 
He's like a lawyer, and scriptures do this all the time. He actually, as a lawyer, goes and he makes his case. And he helps you reason through your emotions. That means that if, in fact, you can allow God or you will allow God to start thinking clearly, then you are allowing God to eliminate unnecessary anxieties. Anxieties are dealt with by godly reasoning. He does it six times right here. You'll see. He says, but what about this? Why are you anxious? Because think about this. Don't be anxious because look at this. See, he's reasoning with you and I, and he's helping us think through our anxieties because you can actually think yourself into anxieties. And God is helping you think yourself out of anxieties. See that? Reasoning. Can everybody say reasoning? reasoning. Okay, so here he says, look at the birds of the air. We've done that. Um, then verse 28, it says, and why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Not because they're lazy. It's saying, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory is arrayed like one of these. Was not arrayed like one of these. He's basically saying, they don't toil nor spin because they're lazy. It was just God was going to supply anyhow. It was always going to be God. Verse 30, but if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And here, here is the key, folks. Are you ready? Oh, you of little? Mm. He says, do not be anxious. He says, do not be anxious. He says, do not be anxious. Oh, you of little faith. Then he carries on in verse 31, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And then he reasons with us again. He says, For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Now, what is anxiety here to do? Anxiety is here to change your priorities. That's what it is. Why does the devil want you to live filled with anxiety? He wants you to be filled with anxiety so that you will not seek first His kingdom. And you will not first seek His righteousness. But that you will first start running after these things first, thinking that that is where you will find security because that is evidently therefore the thing you put your trust and faith in. So He's pulling, He's, he's redirecting our thoughts. He's redirecting our mindset. And He's reasoning with us. And He's saying, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Trust God because your priorities are at stake. Trust God. Why? So that you can have your priorities right again. But folks, there's no two ways about it. If in fact you buy into anxiety and you buy into what the world usually does I mean the world just are the world is so on edge because what they have right here matters is all they have the reason you don't have to fall into that anxiety that ocean of anxiety and even act it out is because this is not this is the least you've got 
This is the least you will ever have. <laughs> we got so much more to look forward to. And this is the most they will ever have. This is the least amount of peace you will ever have. This is the most amount of peace they will ever have. And so, of course, they're going to fall apart at the seams because of the way they reason. And of course, Bible believers who come back, I'm not saying fear doesn't knock at the door. Fear knocks at our door. Remember, I started off, when I'm afraid, that's my key. It's time to battle. Battle how? Trust God. Trust God. And folks, when you see your priorities slip, guess what? Your priorities slip because of anxiety. You go like, no, I'm not anxious. Well, then why are you working so extremely hard? Because of where you do, where you do put your trust. Now, when we have identified... Now, let me just first say this to clarify this. It says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things that you are so wrapped up in and so anxious of. And all these things will be added to you, even if it's health, peace, safety, security. Verse 34, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. And here's the problem with what we are facing in society right now. The reason people are coming, out, coming apart at the seams is because of tomorrow. It's the unknown that really hits them hard. They are in fear of the unknown. Right? Yeah. If we had known how this was going to play out, most fear will just be gone. But <clears throat> he says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, the unknown. For tomorrow, the unknown has its own anxieties, but sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So how about today? How about glorifying God today, worshiping Him today, putting your trust and your faith in Him today? No, I'm putting my trust and my faith in Him tomorrow. No, today is the day, right? Now, uh, so evidently, it was not... Their circumstances, but their little faith that was God, that's the problem. Jesus puts his finger right on the problem and he says, it's not your circumstances, by the way. I know you're freaking out about the virus or about whatever it is, the economy. It's actually not your circumstances. That's not why you're anxious. It's your lack of faith. That's why you're anxious. Now that we have it identified Doubt as the root that grows great harvests upon harvests of anxiety and harvests upon harvests of fear. It is doubt that does that. It leads us to the, opposite, the obvious question, which is how can a person defeat their doubt? How can a person defeat the unbelief that they live in? So I wanted to show you just a few things. We're going to walk through a few scriptures and look at some of them exegetically. But the first one is in the book of Lamentations. Now, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but I, I'm not like eager to run to the book of Lamentations and read the thing and memorize it. Like, yippee, I memorized the book of Lamentations. Now, the book of Lamentations is, sounds exactly what it is. It's, it's a bunch of lamenting. And you go like, why is everybody weeping? Why is everybody crying? What is the big problem here? Well, what was going on <clears throat> was that it's the horror story of the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what the book of Lamentations is about. 
And one can even derive it, of course, from the name, lamenting. And right in the middle, tucked away, in the middle of this entire book of wailing and weeping, right in the middle, there's this verse right here. It says in Lamentations 3, verse 22 and 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. His mercies never come to an end. They are, they are new when? Every morning, great is your faithfulness. They are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. So with the promise of His mercies being new every single morning, we start here. This is where we start with turning around anxiety from being anxious and fearful to being filled with faith and confident. This is how we turn it around. With this promise right here, we fill our hearts with hope, with the promise that we can see every morning as a brand new page. With God, every morning, a brand new page, a fresh start, even when we are in the middle, in the middle of lamentations. It's a brand new day. <laughs> can you see that? Amazing. It's fantastic. You have to see it like this, Nick. In the middle of everything, this is a new day. His mercy is on you today. Amen. 1 Peter 5 verse 7 says, Casting all your what? Anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This verse says that there is a reason as to why we are to shift our anxieties off of ourselves onto Him. There's a reason why. This reason is because He cares. That's the reason. When I start doubting He cares for me, or if I start doubting His care of me, is when anxiety starts growing and growing and growing and growing. It's like a cancer. It's like when your immune system is lower and you have a, cancerous, a cancer, your cancer grows when your immune is down. And same thing when your doubt, when your doubt increases, so does your anxiety. The less you trust God, the more anxious you'll become. So when I start doubting His care of me is when anxiety rises in my heart. Anxiety can only come, it can only come from and it can only develop in the heart that doubts. It cannot survive in the heart that has expelled the doubt. So the call to action here is very simple, family. The call to action here is to keep reminding yourself he cares for me. Can you say that? He cares for me. The call to action is remind yourself of the fact that if God cared for me 2,000 years ago, He cares for me today. Oftentimes we think, while I was an enemy of God and I was shaking my fist at God, He saved me. And now that I'm a son of God, He can't stand me. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. If He cared for you 2,000 years ago while you were His enemy, He now cares for you today while you are His son and His daughter. If He loved me 2,000 years ago, He loves me now. If He took initiative to care for me while I was His enemy, He cares for me more now that I'm His child. And that is why I can confidently echo Psalm 91, 5 and 6. You will not be afraid. You will not be afraid of the terror by night 
or of the arrow that flies by day. You will not fear it. So interesting how the night offers terror. Why? Because that's the unknown. It's what you can't see. You will not be afraid of the unknown terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. You will not be afraid of the pestilence that stalks in darkness, the unknown, or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. You will not fear it. You will not have anxiety. Psalm 91 verse 9 says, For you have made the Lord your refuge. For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High your dwelling place. Not e uh, not e no evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. Can you say this with me? I will not fear. I will not fear the terror. I will not fear the night. I will not fear the arrow. I will not fear pestilence. I will not fear the darkness. I will not fear destruction. Because you are my refuge. I will not fear any plague. Because you are my refuge. And when fear comes... I'll trust in you. Isaiah 41, verse 10. And I want to exegetically look at this for a little bit. It says, do not fear. Can you tell yourself, self? Do not fear. For I am with you, says the Lord. Then it says, do not, be, do not anxiously look about yourself, for I am your God. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Let's just go back to the opening there. It says, do not fear. Now, if you've opened up your Bibles in Isaiah 41 verse 10, you can write next to, do not fear. You can write, if you can fit this in, He's not saying do not manage or, or uh, he's saying do not manage your fear. That's what he's saying. He's saying do not manage your anxieties. He's saying stop having them. Because oftentimes that's what we do. He didn't say manage them. He says don't have them at all. You are fearless. You are bold because the Lord is your God and salvation belongs to Him and Him alone. Yeah, but isn't there something I was supposed to do? Just trust Him. And trusting God is saying, okay, here's a pillow and on this pillow I'm going to write the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Guess what? He's sovereign. That means He's in control. I'm not. He leads. I don't. He figures it out. I don't have to. And you pay, take this pillow and you put your head on it and you sleep. That is faith. Faith is not you exercising something. Faith is you resting from exercising something. Faith is you thanking God that He is sovereign in your life. And if it's my time to go and be with the Lord, let it be so. 
I mean, we have to absolutely live. You have to play out the worst possible scenario. And guess what? Our worst possible scenario is exciting. I remember going on a mission trip to South Africa. And one of the ladies that were going with us started having anxiety attacks on the airplane. But it wasn't because of the flying as much as what it was about the whole trip. What if I die on this plane? I'm like, what if you die on this plane? She goes, well, what if, what if we die in Africa? <laughs> I'm like, what if you die in Africa? I'm like, wouldn't this be the place to die? I mean, think about it. If, if, if Jesus is coming back, where would you like to be? Would you like to be watching 40 Shades of Grey, or would you like to be on a mission strip? <laughs> Where would you, would you like to be leading people to the Lord? What would you like to be doing at that point? Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm like, wouldn't that be the better way to go? Right. Play out the worst possible case scenario. And the worst case scenario is, is better than what we even realize. Yeah. So we can cast our care upon Him. How do we do it? You put your head down on the pillow called the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign. I have nothing to lose. I have absolutely everything to gain. Cast your care upon Him, for He cares for you. So this verse says there's a reason that we ought to shift our anxieties, and the reason is because He cares for us. Isaiah 41 verse 10 says, Do not fear. In other words, don't manage anxieties. Don't have them. Don't try and manage your fears. Don't have them. For I am with you. That is why. For I am with you. Stop having anxieties because of this reason. I think we need to make this a little warmer, Dave. Just one degree, if that's okay. Is that okay with everybody? Okay. So why is he saying, do not fear? Because he's with us. That's why. You as a parent don't like it when your child struggles with anxiety even while you carrying them like don't worry don't worry honey i have you stop fearing stop fretting and here he's saying do not fear why because i'm with you that's why as a matter of fact you complimenting god you glorifying him when you don't fear knowing that he's with you for i am with you stop having anxieties because of this reason the truth about me being with you should and will unplug the fact of anxiety. You will look a storm in the face without anxieties when in fact you are convinced that God is with you because that is what takes anxiety out. Stop having anxiety and stop fearing. How? By believing that God is with you instead of doubting that He is. And then it says, do not anxiously look about you. In other words, stop even looking like you are anxious. Just stop it. Why? Again, for I am your God. That is the reason why. Don't even look about yourself anxiously. Why? Because I am your God. That's why. You are my child. Then he says, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 
God takes upon himself the responsibility to strengthen you. It's his responsibility and he's trying to convince you that it is. He takes upon himself the responsibility to help you. He takes upon himself the responsibility to uphold you. But your responsibility is to stop doubting that he's with you and to stop doubting that it is he takes that responsibility upon himself. So let's highlight the scriptural way of dealing with three different anxieties that we face in life. And the first one is the anxiety about affliction. The anxiety people have by, because of affliction. Psalm 34 verse 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of all of those afflictions. Many are the afflictions. And some people believe that they don't have any afflictions because they're Christians. It doesn't say so. Jesus even says so in the New Testament. And when Paul was called, that's what Jesus told him. Hey, yeah, I'm going to show you all these things you have to suffer on my behalf. And we don't know nothing about suffering because we've gone through this systematic theology think, uh, where we've eliminated everything regarding suffering in the Bible, saying, well, that's not for us, where well, that is not true. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Righteous people also deal with afflictions, but the Lord delivers him out of all of them. Sooner or later, you and I will be delivered from the affliction, whether it be here in this world or in the age to come. We will be delivered from the affliction. The apostle Paul prayed and asked God to deliver him from a specific affliction that God put upon him, and God said, no. <laughs> Why? So that he may be humbled. <laughs> Nope. Jacques, that's not true. Well, then show me how it's not true because that's what the Bible says. God delivers you from afflictions. Sooner or later, we will all be delivered from them. You who are in Christ are destined for joy unspeakable and full of glory. Number two, how about anxiety concerning growing older? How many of you have ever had that? Yeah? Anxiety about growing older. CJ, have you ever had that? Let's <laughs> find the youngest person in the room. <laughs> anxiety about growing older. <clears throat> I love this. Isaiah 46, verse 3 and 4. It says this, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb by me, even to your old age, I will be the same. I will not change. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. So I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. Most translations say save you. I will save you. So the picture he's giving us here is, from before you were born, I was the one who carried you like a father. And then when you came out and you were born, I carried you all the way until your hairs were gray. And I, I was the one who carried you from there to here, and then I will save you. I'm the one who does that for you. Isn't that amazing? Look at how clearly it says it in the NLT version. It says, listen to me, descendants of Jacob, all who remain in Israel. I have cared for you since you were born. Yes, I carried you 
before you were born. I will be your God throughout your lifetime. Until your hair is white with age, I made you and I will care for you and I will carry you along and I will save you. I will do this for you. And then when you arrive, the judgment seat of Christ, you'll be handed these crowns, the crown of righteousness and the crown of joy, and you will take that crown and you will go put it at the feet of Jesus. Why? Because He carried you before you were born, when you were born, throughout your life, until your hair was gray, and then He saves you. Isn't that amazing? Rest in the knowledge that your life has always been and always be in God's hands. Your life has always been and will always be in God's hands. Those whom He foreknew, those He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. Those He also called, he, those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorifies. Amen? Tell your neighbor, I'm in God's hands. I have, there's no need for anxiety. Number three, anxiety about death. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 and 10. For God has not destined us with wrath. For God has not destined us with wrath. I've always wondered about this. You know that it doesn't make sense to actually believe that the wrath of God is completely poured out, every drop of it, for all of humanity on the cross. It actually couldn't be true because you see the wrath of God spilling over in New Testament portions, like for instance, in Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God falls on people and He gives them over to defective minds, remember? Then, <clears throat> I believe it's in Peter, Second Peter, where it says, Now, the, the, the officials, the governmental officials do not carry the sword in vain, for they are God's ministers of wrath. For the evildoer, God pouring out His wrath, it's spilling over, and then all the way until Revelation, you talk about the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out on humanity. I mean, if you see, all of God's wrath was not poured out on the cross. No, no, no. Those whom He foreknew, and those whom He those whom He foreknew, He also predestined, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He goes for them. I pour out my wrath completely. Every drop of my wrath against their sin falls on Christ. Done, because those whom I justified, them I will glorify too. I don't know if you followed that. Did you? Every drop of the wrath of God falls on, on those whom He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, and He also glorifies. Find that verse and you'll see. And here it says, For God has not destined us for wrath. Those whom He foreknew, He has not destined them for wrath. Those whom He predestined, He has not destined them for wrath. Those whom He called, He has not destined them for wrath. And those whom He justified, He has not destined them for wrath. They will not see the wrath of God. Hallelujah. They will not. But the rest of the world. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we are not destined for wrath. We have, in other words, we have obtained salvation, saved from the wrath of God. Remember, 
You're saved by the grace of God, from the wrath of God, for the glory of God. We, for those, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. So that whether we, whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we might live in Him. Whether we are awake in this age or asleep in this age and awake in the next, we live with Him. Actually, to the Christian, it's not that it doesn't matter, but to the Christian who has a completely sober mind regarding this issue, like the Apostle Paul, wishes, <laughs> wishes and longs for the time of sleep in this age so that he can be alive in the next. Here, in essence, he is giving you and I who are in Christ this promise and the promise is simply you have a destiny and God is the one who designed your destiny and he is the architect of the outcome of that destiny and whether you are dead or alive you are going to be just fine you are going to be living gloriously with him in this world through every storm through every challenge every virus all the way through death all the way into eternity, you and I are going to be just fine in Him. Amen? Amen. Amen. Come on, let's give the Lord a praise offering for that. Thank you, Lord. Now, you thought I was finished. <laughs> I wanted to borrow some materials from the midweek discipleship group just the one we just had because it seemed like the only possible way for me to go from here and because of what we are facing uh, it's the only possible response I can give to the reality that we're going through in the last couple of weeks and and so here's the question what did the church deal with and how did they respond to the very thing that they were dealing with what did the early church deal with and how did they respond to the challenges that they're dealing with? First, I want to tell you about, before I read his letter, I want to tell you about a man by the name Pliny or Pliny. And um, we call him Pliny the Elder because he was the dad and then he had a son too. Both of them well read and today viewed as some of the oldest historians that we have their writings of still. He was a Roman author, he was a naturalist, he was a philosopher, he, uh, a naval and army commander. He was a military man of the early Roman Empire. He was a philosopher, military man of the early Roman Empire, and he was a friend of uh, Vespa, Vespasian, or however you want to pronounce him. So Pliny the Elder lived during the first century and reported to the government on the early church because they always wanted to know what was going on in society. And this commander-in-chief in the Roman Empire, he would respond to the king and the emperor. And um, he was giving news to the government of the very same churches the Apostle Paul started. It was at the same time that these people lived. It was the early church. Paul had just passed away. The congregation members of those churches that Paul, he still led these people to the Lord. They are now in these congregations. And this man is now writing a report to his supervisor as to this cult that's happening 
that the Apostle Paul started, and they serve a God named Jesus Christ. So I'm going to read it to you. Pliny the Elder writes this to the Emperor Trajan, and I quote, It's my practice, my Lord, to refer to you all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who can better give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? I have never been, <clears throat> I have never before participated in trials of Christians, so I do not know what offenses are to be punished or investigated or to what extent they ought to be punished and investigated. And I have not been a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction or whether there should be any, any distinction on account of age or no difference recognized between the very young and the more mature Christian. Should we treat them all the same? Is pardon to be granted for repentance? So in other words, are they going to be forgiven when they repent for being a Christian? Or if a man has once been a Christian, is it irrelevant whether he has ceased to be one or not? Do I still prosecute the person even though he's repented from being a Christian? Is the name Christian itself to be punished even without offenses or only the offenses perpetuated or perpetrated in connection with the name? Meanwhile, in the case of those who were denounced to me as Christians, I have, uh, or I have followed the following procedure. Number one, I interrogated them as to whether they were Christians. Those who confessed, I interrogated a second and a third time, threatening them with punishment. Those who persisted in order, those who persisted, I ordered be executed. They asserted, however, and this is what they said, that the sum and substance of their fault or error, in other words, their crime against the government, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath not to do any crimes but not to commit fraud either, theft or adultery, not falsify their trust nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. They wanted to be trustworthy. When this was over, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake of food, but ordinary and innocent foods. <clears throat> the letter continues, but I wanted to stop there. Can you see that for anybody to actually be a Christian even in those days, it was a very dangerous thing. They met before sunrise. They met in secret. When they were caught, they were told to curse Christ. The Apostle Paul made them curse Christ. These people made them curse Christ in order to prove that they were not Christians. It was dangerous for them to. And those who held on to their faith, even after being caught, they were ordered, uh, he ordered them to be executed. It was dangerous for them. And we live in dangerous times. Well, we think it's dangerous at this point. It seems like it could be dangerous at this point. They lived in dangerous times and their lifespan was much shorter. <laughs> much shorter because the cleanliness thing, I mean, people died for no reason back then. 
they had a lot of things to think about, more so than what we do. But nowhere do we see the early church entangled by the challenges of life. We just don't see it. Nowhere do we see these people entangled by their circumstances. They aren't crippled by what they were going through. They stood strong in their faith. These early Christians were free, completely free from the fear of worry, the fear of anxieties. These early Christians lived in the face of death constantly in order to be a member of a church. It's amazing. And all you hear from them throughout history, God be glorified in life and in death. God be glorified in life and in death. God be glorified in this life. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 and 3. Paul's coming to the end of his life. He's writing all these epistles. He's in prison. He was in prison and he was being tortured. The apostle Paul went through more hell than what you can actually fathom and imagine. And he just kept on going. He just kept on going. We learned on Wednesday night, they go to a city called Iconium. And uh, there he heard that they were, they were about to stone them. So they fled and they went to the next city called Lystra. There, uh, um, they actually did stone him and left him for dead. They pulled him out of the city gates. He, they thought he was dead. They walked with him out. They pulled him and they dropped him in a field. The disciples came and stood around him. Everybody else had left, thought he was dead. The disciples stood there and he stands back up. It wasn't a miracle. He was unconscious and they thought he was dead. That night they sleep right there. The next morning he walks to a city called Derby, and they have fantastic mission strip right there. Many coming to Christ. This guy is still bleeding from the night before and he's doing, he's doing crusades. <laughs> These people so lived beyond their circumstances. And it was all about God be glorified in life and death. And so here, here he writes Timothy a letter and he says, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. I would imagine that if I was sitting in a prison and I had been stoned, left for dead, I'd been whipped, I'd been uh, um, beaten with rods, which means that they take their feet, clamp their ankles, put them upside down, take steel rods, and they start beating their feet and beating their feet until all the bones in their feet are broken. All right, now, when you listen to, and we read this on Wednesday, when you listen to some historians, they talk about the Apostle Paul walking like this because all the bones in his feet had been broken. It's punishment for being a preacher of the gospel. And these men, you don't find anywhere where he's writing letters about his plight. Do you? All he's saying, oh, he's sitting in prison. We don't even know it. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, thanksgivings be made for all people. And then he says, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and Savior. I want to remind you that Paul wrote that from prison, and the king he was referring to, and he told him to pray for, was the king Nero. Nero was always in charge during that whole, that whole time. Nero was the man who actually took Christians and put them on stakes 
along a pathway throughout the middle of the city and burnt, put tar on them and burnt them so that they can act as lamps, as street lamps for the main street down their city. Nero was crazy. He burnt down the city and blamed the Christians for it. He was, he was a crazy man. But here the Apostle Paul says, Now, don't forget, pray for the king. And it was Nero. Now, I too have to repent about that. It's hardly possible for me to sit down and write a letter about what you should do without thinking about myself. Like, well, I'm struggling with this and I'm struggling with that. I'm going through this fear and I'm going through that anxiety. They never did that. They were all about God be glorified in life and in death and don't give up. Don't give up. This is the highest honor any man could have and that is to spread the truth of God while you have this short window of opportunity on this, in this age on this earth. This is the highest honor any man could have. Paul knew it. And he says, pray for Nero. I would like you to say this with me as we con conclude today. I do not have sorrow like the world does. <clears throat> you know, the Bible says that. You don't grieve like the world because you grieve with hope. They grieve without hope. Let's say, I do not feel like the world does. On the contrary, I have a joy, a joy the world knows nothing about. I have a peace that the world does not know, that the world cannot give. And I have a faith, a faith to believe that the world does not have unless God gifts them with the same. I have a calm in the midst of a storm because just like my leader Jesus, in the middle of a storm, I can lay my head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. And I can say, God, you are God in this life and the next. My life is yours. Do with it what you think best. I'm in faith. Amen. This is faith. Let's give the Lord a praise offering. Thank you, Lord.